Pray with me, please. Lord, we sang a song of worship, declaring you to be holy, holy, holy. It's what the creatures around your throne are doing right now. And they have been ever since you created them. And Lord, today, right now, as we dive into your book, and especially the book of Deuteronomy, I pray, Lord, that you will help us to understand what it is like, what it means for us as your followers, as your people, to be holy. So, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for what your Holy Spirit will do in and through this book into our lives. Help us, Lord, to truly live out holiness. And we thank you, Father, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're going to talk more about holiness. Last week we addressed holy boundary markers that the Lord set up that his people are not to cross. This week we're going to talk about the Lord's high bar of holiness and what that looks like among his people. And so when I say holiness is beautiful, how does that strike you? If your heart and mind doesn't resonate that holiness is a beautiful thing, why not? See, our God has dealt with us in his holiness. We who are the family of God, we have been arrested by his holy love. We stand in awe of the pictures that he describes in his word of what the Lord's creatures around his throne are doing and they are saying. Whether Old Testament prophets like Isaiah or New Testament apostles like John, they see and hear the same thing. Awesome power. The shaking of foundations. The Lord's loud voices calling out to one another in reference to the one sitting on the throne. Holy, holy, holy. I also think of the Lord Jesus in the days of his ministry. Our Lord's life was marked by holiness. His disciples had a burning request. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. And immediately the Lord gave his disciples what they asked for, and he gave them what we call the Lord's Prayer. And after addressing the Almighty One as Father, Jesus instructed them and us how we are to see Yahweh. Father God, may your name, another way of saying you, be honored as holy. See, holy is not something that God has. Holy is something God is. And if we are going to be the people of God, we are to be holy. And then it behooves us to know what holiness looks like in our own lives. Did not God say to his people, be holy, for I am holy? As I mentioned last week, we address lines and circles regarding the holiness of God. Holy boundary markers that Yahweh through Moses put down and said, do not cross. If you cross them, you do so at your own peril. And last Lord's Day, we saw laws concerning sexual morality that demanded capital punishment. And on the other hand, we saw one law, when applied, served to actually prevent death, installing a parapet. Remember that? It's a railing around the roof of a house, flat roof, and so that people would not fall off the roof and die. Well, today in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 1 to 25, so if you don't have it open yet, please open your Bible to Deuteronomy 23, 1 to 25. Instead of lines and circles, as in stay behind these boundaries, we're going to see bars. 
as in the high standard of holiness the Lord sets for his set-apart people. Now, in verses 1 to 8, we're going to see some rules regarding who can approach the Lord in worship and who cannot. And by the way, the Lord is exclusive as to who can come and worship him and who can't. See, the Lord doesn't just accept anybody who desires to worship him. Did you know that? See, we hear so often, and we oftentimes say, come as you are. Well, not so. The bar to approach the Lord in worship is indeed high. Now, I'm aware of how foreign this sounds. See, we've always been taught, haven't we? Come as you are, but stay with me. It will be happy ending, I promise. In verses 9 to 14, we're going to see a high bar regarding cleanliness among his soldiers. Cleanliness, soldiers. That kind of, sounds a little bit odd, doesn't it? See, war is fought in the grit and the grime. But in the camp, God's warriors are to separate themselves literally from human filth. Yahweh's warriors to fight, they're to be fighting holy wars. And they need to adhere to holy rules set down by Yahweh in even the most mundane private activities that a person can do. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Verses 15 to 18 addresses Yahweh's high holy bar that his people avoid worldly alliances, whether politically or religiously. Runaway slaves and cult prostitutes are the subjects of this here that Moses deals with. And finally, in verses 19 to 25, we're going to see Yahweh's call for his people to be full of love for one another and full of integrity to the Lord in fulfilling their vows. So as we walk through verses 1 to 8, it appears that on the surface that Moses gave hard and fast rules, impossible standards, unfair, we might call out from our hearts, but all is not as it appears. And that is indeed good news. But let's consider this first section as wisdom applied to holiness. You might find that to be an odd thing. But here's what I mean. If you're familiar with Bible study lingo, okay, you know that the Bible is not just one book, but it's really a collection. It's a library of 66 books and writings of all kinds. And the word is genre. Remember back in the day that you learned this word, genre? There's poetry in the Bible. It's pretty obvious, isn't it? And prophecy. Many, many stories. And also, Wisdom literature. See, when we study the Bible, one of the main rules that we need to have in our minds and hearts that when we understand it and try to apply it or write is that we need to address the passage that we're studying according to its genre. And the book of Proverbs is a great book about wisdom literature. It is chock full of pithy sayings and wise maxims for life. But they are not ironclad promises that are true in every case and in every situation. Would you agree with that? For example, who is not familiar with the proverb, Proverbs 22, 6? Train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he won't depart from it. Well, how many parents, after training up their son or their daughter in the ways of the Lord, carry around broken hearts? blaming themselves because they see their grown kid living a life of rebellion against the Lord. And mom and dad are in despair because they treat this wise saying, generally true, 
as an ironclad promise from God. What did I do wrong? Where did I go wrong? Because my kid is not living according to the ways of the Lord. See, in this case, there is an exception. That proverb wasn't true in their family. Mom and dad did the best they could, and their son and daughter did not stay with the Lord. So Proverbs 22.6 is not a promise that their kid would never, ever go away and go astray from the Lord. Even though it says, even when he's old, he won't depart from it. Again, this is Proverbs. This is wisdom literature. It's not true in every situation, but it's true as a general rule of thumb. And so with that in mind, we can see verses 1 to 8 in Deuteronomy 23 in a little bit clearer light, I believe. Now, I don't want to push this idea of wisdom literature too far into this because this is Torah. This is the law of God, which is yet another genre that we need to interpret rightly. But there are clear examples concerning these hard and fast rules about who is allowed in the assembly of the Lord to worship him and to draw near and who is not allowed. There are exceptions. See, what the Lord seems to value even more highly than his high holy standards when it comes to regarding who can and who cannot draw near to him in worship. The word is repentance. This seems to be the Lord's underlying principle here. God says over and over again in his word, turn from your sin and I will accept you. Repent, God tells us. See, over and over again, we see this. Even just a a surface reading of scripture reveals this. So we're going to see Yahweh in these verses through Moses addressing five categories of people who are either permanently barred from the religious assembly or on probation for a time once Israel takes control of the land. The religiously mutilated, the religiously conceived, the Ammonite, the Moabite, and the Egyptian. So let me just read the verses. We'll go through them, and then I'm going to do a little commenting on them. And there's really not a whole lot of need to explain it because Moses, again, does such a good job of teaching Torah, doesn't he? So let's read verse 1 here together. (laughs) No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. Isn't that nice? Raw language here, isn't it? It's pretty raw. But there's a reason why this is so. This is a person who has mutilated himself because of his devotion to pagan gods, especially the popular god, Ishtar. Last week we talked about the Lord's prohibition of a man putting on woman's garments. Part of the reason is that's not allowed. It's because transvestitism is in devotion to Ishtar. And now Moses says, when a man goes so far in his worship of Ishtar and other gods like her and mutilates himself, this disqualifies him from entering and drawing near to worship Yahweh. No mixture of deities here is what he's saying. Verse 2, no one born of a forbidden union may enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of his descendants may enter the assembly of the Lord. This rule is pretty harsh, isn't it? If we look at it on the surface and we don't understand the religious backstory. And to make matters even more interesting, the phrase 10th generation means forever. Ain't ever going to happen, ever. The kid is permanently barred from entering the assembly of the Lord to join in with God's people and to draw near him in worship. That's the scenario that God himself is painting here. 
The son or daughter referred to here was apparently conceived as a result of a pagan religious ritual. And the word is, in the Hebrew, mamzer. Mark that. In our vernacular, we have another word for that sort of thing. Let the hearer understand. In this particular case, the mother was apparently a cult prostitute. She was engaged in sexual practices in the name of her pagan god. It is not the fault of the kid that she or he is barred from the assembly, but here, sinful actions of the parents carry on to their sons and daughters. That's a reality. See, in this case, the parent suffers for her parents' sins, or the kid does. Remember how the Lord said through Moses that he visits the iniquities of fathers upon the third and fourth generation of those who hate him? Well, how much does one have to hate Yahweh to perform the duties of a cult prostitute? But you might find it surprising. There is a glorious exception here. In the days of his ministry, the Lord Jesus was in effect called a mamzer, apparently throughout his life. See, in John 8, the Jews and Jesus had a rather heated argument about his claims. And they said to him in John 8, 41, we were not born of sexual immorality. And their implied accusation is, but you were. We know why he will be accused that way. Remember the story? Christmas story. Every year we hear about this, right? Here, Mary is betrothed to Joseph. She visited her cousin Elizabeth for about three months. Very soon after Gabriel said, you're going to bear the Messiah. So she left, not showing. But when she came back to Nazareth, everybody saw a baby bump. Who is the daddy here? Now, that's the sermon in itself, isn't it? Particularly when we serve the Lord faithfully, sometimes our reputation gets ruined. Mary's reputation was ruined throughout her life. And in a sense, so was Jesus's. That's another sermon for another time. But even though many people accuse Jesus of being a mamzer, He drew near to worship along with God's people. Verses 3 to 6 of Deuteronomy 23. No Ammonite or Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord, even to the 10th generation. There's that phrase again. None of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever because they did not meet you with bread and water on the way when you came out of Egypt. And because they hired you against Balaam, the son of Beor from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you, But the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam. Instead, the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loved you. You shall not seek their peace or their prosperity all your days forever. Well, that's a line of demarcation. You don't go there with these people. But why did the Lord permanently bar the Ammonites and the Moabites en masse from drawing near along with God's people to worship him? Well, the Ammonites failed in their sacred duty to provide hospitality to their cousins in their time of need. Remember, Moab and Ammon were Lot's grandkids, right? The Moabites attempted to provide idolatry through Balaam. The Ammonites and Moabites were forever excluded as a whole from the assembly. This was the overarching rule. But there are exceptions to this ironclad rule in Scripture. Truth, she was a Moabite. And Ruth, a Moabite, was David's great-grandmother. Ergo, on human level, the Messiah himself had Moabite blood flowing through his veins. Oh, the grace and the mercy of God. Would you agree? 
Verse 7, you shall not abhor an Edomite, for he is your brother. Remember who that Edomite is? That's Esau. At last, Jacob or Yahweh now allows one nation to join his people as they draw near to worship him. But how is it that they can draw near? Well, the short answer is it's who they're associated with. And I think of us as Gentiles who are drawing near to worship Yahweh. Why? Because we're part of the family of Jesus. See, Jesus is described as our elder brother in the book of Hebrews. Isn't that right? All Messianic Jews, and, and as Paul puts it, grafted in Gentiles, that includes all of us here. We worship the Lord. We're drawn near because of who we're associated with, the grace and mercy of God, because we're in the family of God. The family of Jesus. In verses 7 and 8, you shall not abhor an Egyptian because you were a sojourner in his land. Children born to them in the third generation may enter the assembly of the Lord. And now Moses extends an invitation for even the Egyptians to draw near and worship the Lord. But it was only after a while, perhaps after a time of probation, where, well, let's, let's make sure that they don't come and invade after a time. Because, you know, it wasn't too long prior to that in Egypt's history that God obliterated Egyptians. And so the idea seems to be, give it a little time. Let Egypt get used to you living as free people before you allow them to draw near to the Lord with you. So what can we say about those who are in and who are out when it comes to being able to worship Yahweh together with his people? Though the Lord's rules are indeed a high bar, by his grace and mercy, the Lord found a way, didn't he? And for us, that way is Jesus. Did he not say, I'm the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father, to Yahweh, except through me. I mentioned a bit ago that the Lord doesn't allow just anybody to come in and worship him, just as they are. No, all must come through Jesus. He's the door. And no one can enter that door except the repentance of sin and reconciliation to King Jesus. And it's by his grace and his mercy that even people who are forever barred from entering the assembly can enter as they come his way. And for us in the 21st century, it's through Jesus. It's through repentance and faith in Christ is how we come to the Father. In verses 9 to 14, the Lord's warriors are to maintain cleanliness in the camp as they fight his battles. Now, for lack of time and in reality, do we really want to see some details of hygiene here? Let me kind of summarize for us here. Now, in short, when nature calls, go outside the camp. That's what he's saying. Now, a brief note about verse 10. If you look at verse 10, the phrase nocturnal emission is listed here. Now, nocturnal emission, of course, is what happens sometimes to a male at night. <laughs> Let the hearer understand. Or it can simply be going to the bathroom. We call that going number one. Now, it seems to fit the context a little bit better when you look at it that way because the very next phrase, the very next scenario is you need to have a trial. So either way, Moses, I believe, says here, whichever avenue that somebody has to travel regarding of how to relieve oneself, go outside the camp. In other words, keep the camp clean is what he's saying here. And for practical reasons, because if you have a single place where the stuff is covered up, 
keeps the diseases at bay. And so what happens with no diseases in the camp? God's warriors can fight God's battles. It's a very practical thing here. In verses 15 and 16, we have the case of foreign runaway slaves. The rule here is that Israel is to be, in essence, a sanctuary nation for them. Now, let me give a little background here, because just looking on the surface is like kind of weird. But according to the practice back in the day, nations which were political allies had slave agreements. Slaves were to be given back to the nations they escaped from if found. Now, Moses told the people, by implication, that they were not to become allies with other nations, and therefore they did not need to return the slaves to the nations that they escaped from. The Lord would be Israel's leader and protector. They did not need to be allied with pagan nations. And all the way through, isn't that what God told his people? Don't ally yourself with pagan nations. I'll be your leader. I'll be your protector. I'll be your your God. That's a good lesson for us as well in the church. The church does not need to be allied with the world. You know, a good friend of mine said the church is too worldly, and we're trying to make the world too churchy. How many churches have bought into the lie that Christians are here to facilitate human flourishing? Simply put, according to many, they believe that God's job for the church is to make the world a better place. Now, I've got a Hebrew word for that. It's called baloney. <laughs> See, we're not here to facilitate human flourishing. We're not here to make the world a better place. We're here to proclaim the gospel of King Jesus, calling people to repent of their sin and be reconciled to him. We're here to help fellow followers of Jesus learn how to more fully obey him because of our love for him. That's it. No other jobs he's given us. We don't need to be allied with the world. So we have seen Moses give several high holy bars showing the standard of Yahweh he has for his people who can draw near to holy God in worship, praise him for his grace, and his mercy. Amen. We saw a high bar that the Lord's soldiers keep things clean in the camp and how God's people don't need to be allied with the world to make it a better place. That's not God's calling for his people. Runaway slaves are not to be sent back to the country of origin because Israel is not to create treaties with other nations. But we read through the scripture, don't we? And as an aside, I don't think they did very well with that one. Think Solomon. How many countries was Israel entangled with because Solomon loved the ladies? Doesn't sound like a very wise man to me. You're supposed to be husbands of one wife. Now, in verses 17 and 18, we see yet again, and again, and again, no idolatry. You would think that Moses is trying to warn them because they might have a problem in the future with this. Cult prostitution, whether male or female cult prostitution is what Yahweh through Moses is referring to here. Not only is there no one allowed to engage in this kind of foolishness, but there should be no, shall we say, rationalization to engage in cult prostitution, as in sexual activity in the name of pagan gods, so that you know they can secure the pagan gods' blessings. Such rationalization saying things like, hey, I've got an idea. All the money that I make by applying my trade in temple prostitution, I can give to Yahweh. Wouldn't Yahweh accept this? Eh, no, Yahweh will not accept this at all. The Lord calls both the act of cult prostitution 
and the money that's made from it, abominations. He will not accept this. Now, sort of akin to the seedy industries that we have in our world. Do we think, though, that the Lord is pleased that people say in the wicked pornographic industry that they, if they have a desire to give to the church some money over the billions and billions that they've made from pornography, that God would be pleased with that? Me neither. See, a so-called industry that destroys lives and the money that goes along with it needs to go back to the pit from where it came. God does not need that money from that source regardless of how much money it is. And speaking of giving to the Lord, Moses teaches the people about vows. Now, verses 21 to 23, he says these words. If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You should be careful to do what is passed from your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God which you have promised with your mouth. So what's a vow? In short, it is a volunteer, free will offering, unsolicited by the Lord, but this person says, I, I love the Lord so much. I'm so happy with what he's given me, what he's provided for me. I want to give to him some things. I want to give an offering to him. So let's say, for example, that a long-lost uncle has given you $10 million. In one day, everything in your life changes. And you are so excited, and you express to the Lord, Lord, I'm so excited about you giving me this. I'm going to commit to you right now that in 10 days, after I get this windfall here, I'm going to give you 7 million of that. I'm excited. Lord, thank you for giving me this. Well, be careful of what you vow, because Moses says God will hold you to it. So let's say that, oh, this $10 million, that through a lot of snags and a lot of red tape, you get in your bank account exactly $7,500. And you promise to give the Lord $7 million of it. Now what? You vow to the Lord of your own free will, unsolicited, that you would give him $7 million. Do you renegotiate with the Lord? Do you pare down some of what you have promised and don't give him all of it? God says, pay what you vow. And pay it when you said you would. It is better to not vow than to vow and not pay. So the lesson is clear, isn't it? We need to be careful of what we say to the Lord. See, he is holy. He is the living God. He is real. He's the most powerful person. He's the king of the universe. And when we vow, we need to pay up. And that's why divorce is so tragic, isn't it? How many people go to the altar and vow before the Lord, till death do we part? As God's people, we are to reflect the integrity of the one with whom we are in covenant relationship. Let's make our vows to the Lord and view them with the utmost seriousness. And so finally, in verses 19 and 20 and 24 and 25, Moses teaches the people about the importance of brotherly love, whether it be in the realm of loaning money to a brother in need or allowing others to feed off of their fields. Now, in a nutshell, love, of course, means this, meeting the need. That's what love is, meeting the need. 
In Israel's situation, after they cross over into the land of promise, and the Israelite becomes poor through whatever means and through whatever reasons, and he asks his fellow Israelite for a payday loan, so to speak, Yahweh says it just like that. It is a loan, no interest. You're not allowed to charge your brother an interest. Again, because they came to you, they came to a fellow Israelite because they were destitution. They didn't have anything. Can you spot me something? And so the idea is to help the brother out of poverty and not to take advantage of someone to keep him vulnerable. The application, of course, works both ways, doesn't it? What if the one loaning the money was all of a sudden the one who needed to ask somebody else for it? How would that be? See, loving one's neighbor as ourselves means that we are generous with our stuff and that we help our brother and sister in their time of need. Same is true in this case with food. Now, I think we all like food, don't we? We all like to prepare it and like to eat it. The picture here is clear, though. When an Israelite plants all kinds of good stuff on his field, in his field, and the Lord blesses him, neighbors and friends can come and they can chow down as much as they want while they're in the field. <laughs> but no doggy bags, please. <laughs> you can do it while you're there, but you, when you leave, you can't take it with you. And I would assume that Moses allows those in need to come as often as they need to, to come and partake of the Lord's blessings that he gave to the owner of the field. And that's a test for the owner of the field, isn't it? Can you imagine all the friends and neighbors coming, eating stuff off of your field? (laughs) That'd be kind of uh, trying after a time, wouldn't it? But a caveat, though. There is a difference between those in covenant relationship with the Lord and with one another and a foreigner. In verse 20, the issue is loaning money to a foreigner. And when that's done, the Israelite can then charge interest to the foreigner whereas the poor Israelite who borrowed from his brother can't be charged interest. And that sort of sounds like a New Testament principle, doesn't it? Galatians 6.10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, Paul says, in essence, if two people come to you with needs, one is a Christian and one is not a Christian, and you only have enough to provide for one, who do you choose? It's family first. Do good to all people, but family first. So what can we make of this, of God's message of holiness to his people today? First, God considers drawing near to him in worship a big deal. Entire nations, entire categories of people are excluded. That's what God tells us here. Well, that was then. And this is now, as we think as if there's been some kind of change in God's standard that God has somehow let down his standard a little bit now that we're on the other side of the cross. See, the Lord has never changed, has he? If he changes one iota, he ceases to be God. He doesn't relax his standards. And I'll use it in quotes, just because Christ died. He's still holy, holy, holy. He invites all people to come, but we must come his way not our own way. We must come to Jesus, and we must come to him clean. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples in the upper room on the night that he was having his last meal with his men, he says, the word I've spoken to you, you're already clean because of those words. Let's remember to come to the thrice holy God boldly. For as the writer of Hebrews says, we have a truly sympathetic high priest who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. 
Therefore, because of our high holy priest and our king who so thoroughly understands us, as Hebrews 4.16 tells us, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Do you have a need this morning that you need to draw close to the Lord about? We're going to have a moment in a little bit to do just that. Another takeaway from this message, the high bar of holiness means separation. Paul urged the Corinthian Christians to live separated lives unto the Lord. And so I'd like for us to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 to 7, 1, to see this here. Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, and I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. My dear brothers and sisters, let's make holiness and and being cleansed a priority in our lives. Let's look to Jesus, our King who hung on the cross. He took our sin away. He loves us, and He wants us to be loyal to Him now. So I'd like for us to spend a moment or two to ask the Lord to search us, to search us. Where are we in this? What in my life, what in your life needs attention? What needs cleansing? in your life? Is it unforgiveness? Is it bitterness? million and one other things? The challenge for all of us in this passage, and even all the way through in Deuteronomy as well, is simply this. Let's consider God's high bar of holiness something to go after, not something to despair of. Out of profound love and the deepest awe and reverence we have to our great king, the Lord Jesus. Remembering that our king is a consuming fire. Ask God to show you by his spirit where you are in relation to him. Confess your sin. Ask him what you need to do next in your quest to meet the high bar of holiness that he invites and demands of his people. And so that said, Let's spend a moment asking the Lord to help us. Asking the Lord, Lord, where is it that you need to work in my heart, in my life, to make me more like you? So spend a moment. Let's pray. Father, in this holy moment, I know for me, I'm, a little overwhelmed at your grace, at your mercy, at your undying love for me. Lord, you knew what you were getting when you saved me. You knew what my past was because you live in the past. You knew what my future would be. You knew all the faults and failures. You knew all the times I would rebel, even as a Christian. But your grace is sufficient. Your love is profound. 
And from the depth of my being, I, I just want to praise you, Lord. For who you are. As the song goes, for saving a wretch like me. That, Lord, you called us, all of us, to holiness, to be separate from the world. The world screams at us and pulls on us. In our own sinful nature, we desire to go that way. We would rather hear lies that tickle our ears than to hear the truth that sets us free. Sometimes, Lord, even as Christians, Lord, we heard your word today. How you consider worship of you, drawing near to you to be a huge deal in your eyes. Lord, I pray that going forward, that we as Grace United, Father, that we will give you the undivided attention, that we will give you our hearts from the moment that we begin the worship service. The moment that we greet one another, when we say welcome to Grace United Family Church, that at that point we will give you our hearts, that we will give you the worship and continue to pray throughout, Lord, that you will accept our worship. The Lord, we know that worship doesn't just start and end here at a certain time. But Lord, we know that worship continues as we walk out of here. Only now we we worship you in front of the watching world. Lord, I pray that you help us to be loyal to you. We stumble and fall so many ways. That you've called us, Lord, to be loyal. You never called us to be perfect because we could never be that way. But you've called us to be loyal. Help us, Lord Jesus to work with you, as it were, as you convict us of our sin. May we be be quick to confess. May we be quick to repent. May we be quick to walk with you. So Lord, I thank you for this time that we've had here. Just a moment to spend that you would examine our hearts. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you, Lord, for this body of believers. I pray that you would help us that you lead us, that you would guide us, that you would protect us from the enemy. Help us, Lord, to, to fully embrace the fact that you want us to be overcomers. And you called us, Lord Jesus, to be overcomers. Help us, please, Lord, to remember that as we leave this place. We are more than conquerors through you who loved us. Now, I thank you, Lord, for this time that we can turn our attention to singing and to giving. These are acts of worship. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to do these things in a worthy manner. And we're going to thank you, Father, for these things. In Jesus' name, amen.